Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay, so welcome back, guys. We're back for another podcast for Space Junk. And today we're going to be talking with a couple of people who work at OPT in the Pro Services area, uh, Chris Hedren and um, Larry Weatherby. And Ooh, right off the top messed it uh, up, man. Uh, I did. Right I do. off I mean, the top. Oh, <laughs> the stress, the strain. It's so hard. I'm not taking it. <laughs> yeah. Larry You're still not Weatherly. Weatherly. There it is. Yes, there it is. I did it. Thank you. Chris and Larry. Welcome to our podcast. And I'm going to let Dustin do a little talking about you because he works with you every day. So go ahead, Dustin. Tell us about these people. Yeah, so this is one that um, I was just a little bit nervous about, you know. Um, these <laughs> these Skeletons guys, in the closet yeah, kind of let, thing, huh? Let's say the yeah. good thing first. So <laughs> these, <laughs> these two here, um, they run our professional services division. So these are d the directors of professional services. And so all of the upper level stuff that happens at OPT in that department, um, these two are in charge of. So there isn't a call that comes through from NASA or JPL or any of the universities around the world or any of the major organizations, you know, SpaceX's, Google's, and a lot we can't name. There isn't a single one that comes through that these two don't manage and handle. Um, that said, <laughs> the uh, we got some interesting characters here in the uh, the studio with us, and this should be a fun one. Welcome, guys. Welcome, Welcome. guys. Hello. Hello. It's good to be here. Yeah. So do you guys sell like – Dustin makes it sound like when NASA calls, it like, hey, can we get a, a couple of Mars rovers and maybe a moon lander to go? Can you get that ship to us? Is it like that? Is that what OPT sells now? You guys really do a lot more than I thought. Well, absolutely. It's part of our used department, though, and the buyer has to go pick it up on Mars when he wants it. <laughs> <laughs> it's used. Yeah. Oh, you're, so you're, you're listing opportunity right now, then, I take it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. Well done, guys. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny though because um, so Larry is actually you're the reason, Larry, that uh, that I'm here in the first place. Larry was my salesman originally when I first started calling to OPT just to get help, you know, getting started in astrophotography. And um, I realized after I don't know maybe 30, 40 seconds, I was kind of overwhelmed, and uh, I called to get help. And Larry was the guy that picked up that unfortunate call. You and did this to us, Larry. <laughs> yeah, and it took me 30 or 40 seconds to be overwhelmed by him. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how long yeah. have you been there, Larry? How long have you been at OPT? Uh, about nine years now, I think. Yeah. Wow, that's a good time. Yeah. And you've been uh, – so you started out as a salesman and, and got Dustin involved and implicated into this as a partner in crime. So uh, how do you justify yourself with all this? What have you been, what have you been doing those nine years? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's a funny, funny thing coming here was was very odd because I was a general contractor and had no idea that my life was about to take the turn that it did and I was going to come to work for OPT. I, I actually had been coming here as a customer for, at the time, pretty close to 20 years. And uh, so as an amateur astronomer my, myself, and my wife actually found an, an ad in the paper that said, hey, somebody's looking for salespeople for telescopes. And I knew right away who it was. So that's how I got here. And the journey upward from here is just really, I think, as the needs presented itself and, and uh, you know, as we moved forward. And, it's, of course, when Dustin and, and Jenny purchased uh, the business, uh, everything changed. And it has yeah, to stop You know, I cannot since. wait to meet Jenny. I've heard so much about her. I can't. She must be. She's she's an amazing person. I've talked to her on this podcast, but I can't wait to meet her. She's the better awesome. of the two. <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. Certainly true. It's definitely true. Okay, let me tell you who this is coming from. Okay, so yes, Larry, um, he was my salesperson, and he's the reason he invited me out to come take on the uh, the sales position, which is how I started here. But um, since then, we've had a lot of really interesting experiences, huh, Larry? Some some wild ones. We um. We go each year, Larry and I, to um, Hawaii for a conference 
for space situational awareness, um, you know, at the top end level, no, you're not selling NASA, their rovers or anything like that. But NASA does call on a pretty regular basis, as well as, you know, the universities and things. And generally, the questions are, you know, it's not their job to know all the available equipment and how to piece things together and build these systems. It's their job to know what it is they need to find next and the research they need to be doing and those sorts of things. So they call Chris, they call Larry, they call professional services to say, here's what we're trying to do. How do we do this? What do we need? And they piece those systems together to do that. Um, so we were at this conference in Hawaii, right? And we were there with our uh, our friends at Plane Wave. And Larry literally saves the guy's life right in front of me, the CEO of Plane Wave. We were at dinner together, man. How do do you are you do you feel comfortable with me telling the rest of the story, Larry? I never feel comfortable with you telling anything. Okay, good. <laughs> Good, good, good. Well, let good. me tell you what happened. Thanks for, it, so we're going to tell it anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, so anyway. So me, yeah, because Chris, you need to hear this too, man. This is who you work with every day. <laughs> this guy saves a life right in front of me. Rick, the CEO of Plane Wave, is telling us this story about uh, one of their one meter telescopes at dinner. I'm sitting across from him. Larry's next to me. And Rick starts choking. And at first, like, I can't really tell what's going on. I mean, I can see he's turning blue and everything, but I'm not I'm not piecing it together. Larry. He's a little slow. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely that night. I was slow. <laughs> Larry. Larry jumps out of his seat, runs around the table, starts giving Rick the Heimlich. And everybody's just like, oh, my God, like Rick is going to die right now. It, I mean, it really looked like Rick was about to die. I mean, he turned purple. And. He coughs up this huge piece of steak that had been lodged in his throat, and everybody in the restaurant's like clapping. The restaurant comes over to give Larry like a free meal or drinks wow. or something. Like Larry saves this guy's life, and then that's where the story takes a turn. And so, Larry uh, and I, yeah, we go back up. We're uh, we're sharing a room there in uh, in Maui. We go back up. You know, two beds, two beds room. And uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Larry. Like, I love Lucy. Right, right, right. <laughs> Larry goes, grabs a shower. We're both. It had been a long day and Larry just saved somebody's life. You know, we're pretty tired. Larry goes to grab a shower and I hear the loudest noise ever. And um, I can tell like Larry either just jumped off a high dive and took a swan dive right into the floor or like he died. Like Larry may have just died in there in the shower. You know, because this sounded like he had to break something at minimum the floor. And uh, this was a huge shower. So I knew like, unless he's doing some kind of crazy exercise, something terrible just happened. Jumping jacks. Yeah. And um, so I'm like, damn it. Larry just saved a man's life not 20 minutes ago. And now it's my turn. <laughs> but, but, but Rick wasn't naked and wet in the shower. And I feel like this is not a fair situation, man. So, so I walk up to the door. Larry got the better end of the night. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. So I walk up to the door and I'm tapping on the door. I'm like, Larry, I, I need you to say you're okay, man, because I don't want to come in there at all. <laughs> like, I need to hear that you're okay. Because you just saved Rick's life, and I'm feeling like a bad person right now. <laughs> but, I'm not going in there. <laughs> but it's going through my head, like, what am I going to do? So I make the decision after a lot of contemplation. I decide I'm, I'm going to have to let him die. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Damn, Larry, dude. So, so man, you know, this sad, is another version of the story. Sadly, I go back to bed. And I'm, I'm laying getting there. ready to go to sleep. <laughs> I'm gonna Larry's grab a little. dying in the bathroom. Oh, Larry, I'm really tired, man. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see ya. Yeah, I'm gonna grab a little shot. You know, it's gonna be a long day tomorrow. And uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Larry did this shit on purpose. <laughs> He's in there trying to get me to come in right now. Is <laughs> what kind of cruel prank is this? You know, and he comes out. You know, I don't know, ten minutes later, and you were beat up, man. Your whole side was like already turning black. You were beat up. But what that's the that's the only version of the story that I think is real, Larry. It's, it's, <laughs> what yeah. happened, Larry? Are wait, were you dying in there? What was going on? I I you know, you just I don't know if you've ever fell in the shower before, but this was a big shower. 
Yeah, it was. A very large shower. And I mean, my just out of nowhere, my feet just went right out from under me, hit the back of my head, hit my side real hard. And he, he's not lying. I was bruised up from it, man. Yeah. It, it, so you it got hurt. so you were out. Then you you were out did, for when he it was. It didn't knock me out, but I didn't hear him knock. <laughs> or calling I never to you and knock. saying, "I'm tell <laughs> me you're okay." You didn't hear any of that. It, I didn't hear any of that. It, it was uh, a subtle. It was a subtle knock. Yes, it was. You know, yes. I wasn't super committed to the idea of breaking Larry. the door, though. <laughs> Larry, <Yeah. laughs> just like I'm like Larry, man. Like you good, man. You're cool. <laughs> and I Damn, swear, Dustin. dude, it oh. wasn't 20 minutes after watching him save his life, you know, save Rick's life. But you know what? I'm not a hero, guys. I'm yeah, we hero. can I, see that. I I'm going to have to let you go, Larry. <laughs> I didn't go to Maui to, tack, to you know, take that door down to come in there oh. and rescue your life in the shower. That's not why we went, man. And I felt like <laughs> I, it was not fair of you to ask me to do that. You know, so really it was your, I think it was your fault is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I, and I know Dustin well enough now to know that he wouldn't really help me. So. <laughs> yeah. So he's not the guy you want. Come on, man. You, yeah, he's so, not the guy you want in the foxhole, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I, I knew that. Yeah. So I, I had to get up off the floor and, and live. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. he sure as hell wasn't going to help. Okay. Look, man, yeah. I'm telling you, you, you take the shower out of this scenario man i'll save your life larry i will but that's not that's not fair you didn't have to save rick in the shower it. choking on that steak you I know love it's the just part when you're like i'm gonna have to let you go man <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna i've thought about this larry but i'm gonna have to let you die well i thought a lot about it but it was uh you know you got decisions to make in life and i felt like this is the only fair one to both of us well, at least you're being honest, Dustin. You, no, no, at least you're honest with yourself. You know your limitations. You know, and the truth is, I would have rather died than him come in there. <laughs> I knew that. I knew that, and that's why yeah. I, I did it for you, man. Yeah. I did that for you. Wow, you guys are really looking after each other. So somebody is getting free uh, plane wave stuff for life. Is that what I'm hearing? No, no, no. <laughs> he wasn't that grateful. You saved you Heimlich, Emma. You know, he didn't. He acted like it didn't even happen, man. Rick went right back to telling us the story. He was telling, oh, like, it, like so it's no just something that happened. That his life had just been saved. <laughs> you know, here, here's the funny part. I've never done the Heimlich maneuver in my life. I raised four kids, and my wife always took care of that when the kids started choking. She was the Heimlicher in the house. Yes. Right? So, so I'm sitting there at this table with there were six or seven of us there. There were a lot, yeah. Yeah, and he really is. He's just choking and turning blue and purple. And I'm sitting there and nobody's even acting like maybe somebody should help me. Right? So I just jumped up and started doing what I was doing. And really, I think all I was doing was breaking his ribcage. Oh, it, it wasn't pretty. Yeah. I was, I was lifting him right out of his chair. I don't think the Heimlich doesn't typically like have punching involved. But man, you <laughs> whatever you did worked, you know. Wow. It looked so painful. I'm... It looked worse than the choking, but you saved his life. That's There's no question. He just went wild. on like it, nothing happened. Huh? Oh, I'm that telling must have you, been man. a strange, strange group there. Yeah, well, and that, no, that and that's what I astronomers. Thought. Well, that's yeah. that's Amateur what I thought. I was like, Rick, no, 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 you can't, you can't finish, you can't just act like you didn't just die just now in front of us all and tell us the rest of the oh, story. Yeah. yeah, you can't, you can't just act like you didn't just die. But okay, uh, so. no, it was a, it was a wild ride, man. That that trip was nuts. But anyway. Yeah, that's who we got in the studio today. That's that's Mr. Okay. Larry. Right there. I learned a, learned a thing or two about traveling with Dustin. I was like, okay, make sure I take care of myself. I can see. <laughs> hey, if you're going to need my help, don't need it in the shower, man. That's all <laughs> okay, all right. Try to note to self. Otherwise, I get uh, Chris is Chris is here. He's never made me do that. You've never asked me once to do something like that. Not once. Yeah. <laughs> it's my deep respect for you. Yeah. <laughs> do not put Dustin in awkward situations. He will not be there for you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but all joking aside, these are two of the most knowledgeable. Chris, I think I mean, I've often heard and I, I agree with this. I think you may very well be the most knowledgeable person on the planet when it comes to uh, amateur astronomy and the telescopes and all the equipment involved. Um, Larry, I've heard you say the same. And I've heard some even when we were in New York a couple weeks ago, we had customers. You weren't even there. And they're still asking, where's where's Hindren? We've got a million questions, you know, and um that's uh, that's quite a thing you've done because you just got started as an amateur, right? I mean, that was it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had an interest from when I was very young. Uh, I'm not sure if it's entirely true. My mom tells me I got angry at the librarian when I was four because I went in and asked for books on stars. She took me to the biography section. 
Oh, so, nice. So nice. I got all pissed off about that. But uh, <laughs> it yeah, still sounds about like you now. Pretty actually. much. Yeah. No, yeah. it, it, uh, I had the requisite uh, kind of piece of crap uh, department store telescope when I was a kid, saw the moons of Jupiter, looked at the craters on the moon, threw it in the garage for like a decade and a half. Yeah. Finally got into it in college. I think what ruined me actually was my first trip to OPT. I had just bought a little ETX 70. I came down to OPT, which was, uh, you know, this was probably 2003. Come in, picked up a Mead catalog. This was when DSLRs were first getting popular. Yeah. Opened it up. You can take pictures with these things. And that was it. That yeah, was it. My, uh, right. I was financially ruined for life at that moment. Well, it's it's earned you uh, a lot of respect, and you have an APOD, a NASA APOD award. Yep, yep. And hopefully, uh, once we get some more work done on the roof of the observatory, I'll be gunning for a few more. Yeah. So uh, certainly one of the best imagers I've ever met, and uh, somebody that you know garners a, a ton of respect to the entire industry. But. Um, I think that what really sparked this was when Ian and I were talking, you know, we had um, uh, Prima Luce here from Italy and they were saying, you know, we knew OPT had their hands in a lot, but we had no idea the extent of it. And uh, like, we had no idea that you guys were doing this professional services thing at all. And I think a lot of people don't, but it's such a unique uh, job that you're doing and just life that you're you're living. Not many people can say they've ever talked to any of these groups that you talk to on a daily basis. And it's so interesting walking through there every day. It's like, it's so interesting the things you guys have going on. What is that like? Well, as I've told you before, the thing I get the most excited about, I think, is you get to hear a unique situation. You have a customer, as Larry said, who comes to you with a problem. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to craft a solution. The solution may or may not be off the shelf. Oftentimes, it involves calling vendors, seeing if they can customize something or get a, you know, I won't get into all the minutia of that. But the thing I just get excited about is customer needs to track a satellite or customer um, at a university needs to instruct the next generation of students and promote STEM learning and things like that. And right. it's, it's, it's so varied. Um, it's, you know, professional covers a wide range, everything mm -hmm. from really the most advanced amateurs doing observatories and things like that. Yeah. Some of these people have hundreds of thousands of dollars in their systems. Absolutely. Not... And they're putting out, uh, APOD worthy images all the time. Right. And then we go everything up to, uh, you know, government agencies and companies we can't talk about. Sure. Uh, of course. but for various reasons, I know I've talked to you about all the layers of security that sometimes happen. And it's almost mm -hmm. comical because I'm like, yeah. look, I just want to talk telescopes with somebody right. and get excited about this. Well, there are a lot of reasons, though, because of the level of the equipment that's sold at the top end, this stuff can be used for purposes outside of just astronomy. And there, there's a lot of layers of protection there. Absolutely. For that reason, um, you know, but. Um, let's kind of talk about, I mean, what, uh, Larry, for you, because you did start in the, the other side, like you were, you know, when I started, you were just doing sales there, you know, actually both of you were just doing sales back then. Uh, Chris, you moved into professional side earlier, but, um, how is it different dealing with professionals against amateurs? There's not a lot of difference really. Um, like you take, take yourself dealing with you as, as a customer. Sure. You know, the fun part is, is really finding, you know, a solution to people's problems uh, because this is a technical hobby and it is difficult to figure out to get a system together to work the way you want it to work. Right. But the fun side really is the fact, you, you know, for me, I, I being an amateur astronomer also, there's a certain amount of money you spend before the wife says, I think we've spent enough. Right. Right. So we all know that story. So, so, you know, when Dustin calls or somebody else calls, now you're spending their money and it's fun. It really is fun to help them spend their money. And well, another component, 
is that they these professional clients come to you generally by the time they're ready to spend money, they've gotten their uh, science requirements pretty well defined. And so they know what they need to do. And that's sort of what Chris was alluding to. They know yes. what they need to do, but they need you to help them do it. What do they need? What do you have that will help them meet their science requirements, right? I mean, aren't their needs pretty well defined by the time they talk to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of times they think they have a list together of what they need, but they don't realize that a lot of times what they have put together isn't the optimal way to do it. But when sometimes it just doesn't work, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so again, now you're talking about much more dollars. So again, it, it keeps it fun. It, it, it keeps it, you know, lighthearted when you think of it that way. And again, I know when I was in sales and, and acting as a sales manager here too, I would tell the guys all the time, just help them with the problems. Just give them what they need. And everything else will just fall into place. And that's pretty much the philosophy here. Some of, the, some of the things walking through there, though, I mean, I've, that I've just heard, you know, in passing, because I don't spend much time um, with. And we lock the door. Yeah, exactly. I'm usually locked out. But um, <laughs> it's very uh, intimidating. You know, that, I, that for me, that would be the difference is that when you're talking to an amateur, it's like I, I'm a, I myself am an amateur. In, amateur so it makes sense like what they're trying to do in the reasons but when you're talking to you know the when i first started my first day i'm working right next to chris hendren so it is the most intimidating thing ever starting at opt where everybody knows what i don't know you know and ian was making fun of me earlier when we were talking about this he's like you know you're sitting there next to chris hendren and somebody calls and they're like do i need a 10 millimeter plossel or a 15 millimeter plossel and i'm like oh shit hold hold please and then i get off the phone and i'm like what's a plossel And Chris Hendren right next to me, I mean, four feet from me is getting calls from the Commonwealth of Virginia or, you know, governments from around the world asking these questions. And I was just like, man, this is so intimidating. It's one thing I told Dustin, though, is sometimes you get this really intimidating government agency or this major university and you get a teacher on the phone and they said, What's better, a 15-millimeter plossel or a 10-millimeter plossel? <laughs> you know, yeah. Sometimes the questions are <clears throat> simple. Sometimes the questions are much more complex. It's a, it's a mixed bag, and it's always the approach of what is, what is best for this. But uh, one of the things I've always been a proponent for here since I've been in sales and uh, now in pro services is trying to better educate our whole team. And I know, Dustin, you've started – with Ian, mm-hmm. uh, a list of, of training uh, classes to better educate our, look, we've already got the best team in the industry. Right. We want it to be better. And as much as possible, us being able to transmit that technical knowledge is what sets OPT apart. Well, from, that's the hard part. And that's the part that can cost people money that they don't get anything in turn for absolutely. is if they make those mistakes because somebody didn't stop them. You know, yeah. Look, I've already made all the mistakes. I've already wasted my money on <laughs> yeah, stuff. Me too. If I can save someone from wasting their money, then <laughs> yeah. I feel I've accomplished something. Well, you know, when I first got started, everything that Larry told me, I kept going against it and, and buying other things. And you know, Larry, you thought I had a. Larry thought that. So I was married to Ginny at the time. This was this was way back. And um, yeah, Larry, you thought she was an imaginary girlfriend. He was telling people here at the staff before I ever worked here, I had an imaginary girlfriend. I thought he was using her as an excuse not to say yes to me, is what I thought. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, because, you know, you'd say, well, here's what you need, Dustin. This is what it's going to cost. You know, what form of payment do you want to use? Well, let me talk to Jenny about this. And I never once heard Jenny in the background. I never once talked to Jenny. And this is, you know, several months, close to a year of just all kinds of conversations back yeah. and forth and emails. Never once did I hear Jenny. But every time I would ask for money... <laughs> Well, let me talk to Jenny. <laughs> let me talk to Jenny. I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, now that now that you know Jenny so well, you know that uh, that's exactly how it was. That's, right? yeah, that's for sure. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. She does the same thing here. She runs this place. Yeah. And so, um, no, I think um, I think I mean, that was those were fun times, though, man, getting into it and having, you know, when you when you just get started, <clears throat> excuse me, and you have everything wide open to you. You know, I, I started with a Dobsonian. I think you guys started with visual scopes as well. Right. And, um, and so 
Yeah. I mean, when you're just getting into astrophotography and you're looking at it and you've got all of these options in front of you, I mean, it can be daunting, but it's also the most exciting period. It's like choosing that path and kind of defining what type of photographer you're going to be or what type of astrophotographer you're going to be. Absolutely. When I got started back in 2003, I shot film. That's going to date me. Yeah, there. You started, you and Tony both, you both started, started with film. film. And, uh, but see, at These least there was snappers light. don't know what they're yeah, missing. Man. I know. There was a light at the end of the tunnel for me because I already knew that uh, Canon had released a new, the original digital Rebel. And I was like, oh God, I want to get that camera. I'm going to buy that $1,000 camera. I better learn how to take a picture first. Mm -hmm. So I got a film camera, went through a couple classes in my junior college nearby, did a little bit of really crappy astro photos that were badly exposed and badly tracked. I had no idea what auto guiding was or how it worked <clears> at that time, but I was like, Oh, thank God I can move to digital. And suddenly I can actually see my image right after I take it. Yeah. That was like a, a huge leap in what was possible back then. Yeah. You've been doing this a long time. Yep. Yeah. How long? So imaging over 10 years, right? Yeah, since uh, now we're going on 16 years for me. For imaging. For imaging, yeah. Wow. Yeah, shot film for a bit, digital SLR. I actually got my first CCD camera right after I came on board here. Mm -hmm. Been at OPT now for, I guess, April will be 13 years. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. You, you know what's funny is that when we told uh, marketing that we were bringing you guys on the podcast to talk about things, um, they started laughing first off because, you know, it's it's you two. But also they were just saying, yeah, that, that makes sense. Bring on the department that can't talk about anything they do because it's all confidential. And that'll make a great podcast, great audio show. You can't talk about anything, you know. But um, there are a lot of things you can talk about. There's, there's one program that, honestly, I'm super proud of, all joking aside, that you've been piecing together, Larry. You want to talk about um, um, your latest project, Future Stars? Yeah, so that's that's the title that uh, one of the actually one of the young men in in marketing, one of our newer employees here, he came up with this. We call it a Future Stars program, and it really simply is just this: it's it's a vision that essentially we want every school that we can get a telescope into the hands of to have one, and it's going to be a telescope around the four hundred to five hundred dollar mark. We're going to do the training for it, and then Im implement a program where the training is just done kind of exponentially, where it just kind of grows through the different users that are really showing the enthusiasm for the telescope. So we've already reached out to, to several entities and several uh, pretty important people in, in their positions. And the excitement that we're getting is, well, it's just, it's just that, just an amazing amount of, of excitement from, to, from everybody that we talk to. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. If you... Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I love the idea though of just, like ensuring schools that you're going to have a telescope, you know, making, making that accessible because I can promise you in Alabama growing up, I, nobody, I don't know if I ever heard anybody say the word telescope. Mm -hmm. It's just not part of conversation. You know, it's just not something people are thinking about. Well, all. science in general and anything that will spark conversations of science in a, in a public school setting is welcome because they just don't have resources. I, I, so Larry, let me ask you about the training then, because will you be giving it? Uh, so is the idea to get the, telescope into a school and then having a science teacher be the one who uh, gets the training or are you talking about students getting the training? Um, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Actually, you know, <clears throat> the idea again stems from something that I did when I lived in, in Northern Idaho in, in, in the panhandle of Northern Idaho, where I actually went and talked to a school one time and this was a school that their background is such where not one kid in that school had ever seen a telescope. They didn't even know if they were allowed to look through a telescope. That's how strict the school was, right? So here I go, and I start talking to them about science and space and stuff. And in the end, within about a year's time, there was 27 students that bought telescopes from that school. And that just kind of opened my eyes. So, so the same thing here is, is the training will initially be myself or another staff member here at OPT. But primarily, I'm going to start it. Um, again, a lot of the, the people here at OPT have shown a lot of interest in it also, and they want to be a part of it. But what we want to do is train whoever shows interest at the school system, whether it be a faculty member, a teacher, a student, a parent, a guardian, 
We don't care who it is. We just think that if a tel- if a school gets a telescope, somebody's going to rise to the occasion, at least yeah. one person. You're right. And then the idea is is for them to go to the next school that's close by and show what they've learned. And again, they'll do that with you know with our help also till it comes to the point to where they don't need our help anymore, where that's concerned. And that's how we see the growth really actually happening. I couldn't agree more. And I'll, I'll just offer right now, if you need a point person in Florida, I'm happy to go to schools and introduce people to this program and help recruit uh, people to get involved. So let's definitely do this. This is, I think this is an outstanding idea. And and people that want We this. just need your digital signature to yeah. that right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, go ahead and sign on the dot. I got it. Love. You got it, man. Uh, yeah, it really is a special thing. And i um, super proud that that came from this staff. You know, it's certainly what we're a about. Great idea. And, um, yeah, it is. And anyone listening that uh, that knows of schools that you feel like, hey, we need this here, reach out to us and um, and let us know. Just send it to um, you want to send it directly to you, Larry, or you want to send it to Pro Services? Pro Services. So okay. just Pro Services at OPTCorp.com. I'd like to say, too, you know, even though Dust has given me the kudos for it, I'm going to say it was just an idea. And as soon as the idea left my lips, there were just several members here at the staff that just took it and started running with it without me even having to ask. So it, it's, this is, you know, I, I just to name some people, Chris sitting right next to me, yeah. Ash, uh, Alan, who actually came up with the name, Alan put together our program of how it's actually going to happen. Uh, just everybody has shown nothing but enthusiasm and Dustin himself, even Dustin, he was immediately on board with it. So, and, and that's hard to do to get Dustin on board. With yeah. Him. Just keep him, <laughs> just keep it out of the bathroom, man. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, right, man. I'm on board with everything. All this the time. first time you've let's ever supported me in anything. It just sounds, it sounds boring not to do stuff. Let's just do everything. Yeah, you know? let's do it all. Well, let me tell you why this is important, guys. I got a story for you too. This, when I I graduated high school in 1980, no comments. Uh, it was in from Boulder Valley School Districts, and they had in their school district a planetarium that was available to the entire district, and the director of that planetarium with that. Within that planetarium were telescopes, and he had many. He had he had ten in, he had a ten inch Cassegrain, not a not a Schmidt Cassegrain. He had several six inch RV sixes. He had uh, a C eight, and and just various other things that he, that he that were available to the district. And he let the kids use the, the. I was an intern there. I worked there after school, and he let us. He gave us access to those telescopes, and I'll tell you, it changed my life. It's why I went into the career path I went into. And I wasn't the only one. There were other uh, boys and girls in the high school that went as well. Now, that program has since long ago been been uh, dismantled. The, the planetarium was shuttered. Um, and it was a real shame. But that was back when school districts used to pay for science education. And this is a glimpse of what we used to do. And I think it's vitally important because you're absolutely right, Larry. You get you get a student close to a telescope who and the, you make the right connection. That connection is for life. And they are going to they're going to not just buy telescopes, but they are going to they're going to share it with other friends. They're going to they're going to be, you know, very excited about getting into astronomy or or even science in general. So I think that's why that's why this is so important. I couldn't say yeah, enough it, about it. Exactly. I think anybody that that is interested in astronomy, especially using a telescope personally, they, they all have that moment yeah. where, and for me, I, I was 30 years old when I first looked through a telescope and go, I can't believe what I'm saying. It was Saturn through a six, a 60 millimeter yeah. refractor, a yeah. you know, hundred dollar refractor. If that, if it even cost that. Right. And I didn't, I didn't believe it was even real. You know, we've all heard that before, but I literally did not believe what I was seeing was real. Right. And I went to the front of the telescope to see if there was a picture Exactly. Front. I know. Mine right? was in 57. It was the Ring Nebula in a shitty RV6 uh, Newtonian. I know just how that feels. It's like, whoa, I've seen this in magazines. This can't right. be that. It's yeah. amazing. But that's what led me on my course that one, just that one evening, I was at my next door neighbor's house. And he said, hey, Larry, you should see this, right? And I went over and looked at it. And that's what changed, you know, the course of my life, really. So, wow, it's amazing. That's a great thing. That's a, I'm glad you guys yeah, are doing it, that. It really is. And, you know, um, when I was back living in Nashville, there's a club there, such a great club, BSAS Bernard Seifert Club, the astronomy club there. And um, they do such a good job of making scopes available. And these aren't expensive telescopes, but they don't have to be. 
you know, it really doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge observatory that somebody goes and looks through. It's exactly what you're saying. Somebody seeing even the moon for the first time is enough. That's what did it for me. It was just looking at the moon through a Dobsonian. It was just, I was hooked. It's all it took. But it's amazing that I had to go almost 30 years of my life to find this thing that gave me this new perspective that I felt like instantly changed the course of my life. And something that I feel like now is I couldn't live without it. You know, I couldn't live without looking at the universe around you. Why would you want to not know your own neighborhood and to look around? And I never even knew that I could. And how many kids are living that way? Yeah. And we don't want them to have to be 30 years old or older just to have the opportunity. How old were you, Larry, when you looked through that? I was 30. You were 30, yeah. And um, I mean, it's just... It shouldn't be that way. And I think that programs like this can change that. Really right, because do. the telescopes themselves are intimidating enough just looking at them. And they're and they're scary enough that if you're just a neophyte, you're not going to go seek them out. But if you just do the simple act of setting one up and letting a person look through the eyepiece, that barrier is broken. And they want they want to know more. They want to get they want to get in there. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we as we all know, so many of the department store telescopes are, are such a letdown when people buy them and try to use them. They try to use them once or twice. And I know it's up, criminal. It's like, really criminal. Yeah, it, yeah. So that's why we wanted to introduce a very low cost, but a very functional telescope that would give really great views. And it's very easy to use. Uh, and even has the, you know, the capability of actually wirelessly, wirelessly connecting to phones and tablets and they can use it that way. If they would just not have advertised these 2000 power eyepieces, I think the, even the department store telescopes could have done a lot better than they did. But because they came with these eyepieces, you had no hope of seeing anything through. It just ruined it, right. you know. And then they came with these yeah. really actually downright dangerous sun and moon filters that you put in the eyepiece. Remember those? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did a lot of disservice to the hobby for sure. Are they still out there? Do people still sell those? They do. Do they? They sure do. Yeah, we we recently had uh, one of those old solar filters come through here, and we had to put on big letters. This is not for putting your eye up to. This is for <laughs> you remember the the old thing they used to do. They have they project the solar image against like a white card. Mm -hmm. Yeah, white yeah, that's, contraption that's thing. a pretty safe like, way. That's the only safe way to do it. Uh, I'm not even sure that uh, it's it's either legal or highly discouraged for anybody to do the, uh, the, you know, putting things at the back of the, uh, telescope near the eye. Cause that's where the light rays come to focus. It's know, generating got, hundreds it, of degrees. You can hold your hand yeah. up and burn your hand behind oh, that yeah. eyepiece. If you're looking at the sun. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I recall from the eclipse, uh, it was actually from a camera lens rental place. There were a bunch of people that went out, rented these super telephoto lenses, 600 millimeter, 500 millimeter, 800 millimeter, you know, $12,000 camera lenses. Well, they have the drop-in filter in the back. So they would get these little solar filters for the eclipse, put them in the back, return the lens. They had melted through the aperture blades and ruined wow. the inside of those $10,000 lenses. It's like totaling a car, basically. Yeah. And that's what happens. That's These are not safe to use. Anything has to be up in the front. Yeah. I wonder, you ever wonder how many people got eye damage that day? Um People just doing it had to be right. I mean, we didn't really hear about it, but you know, it's it. A lot of people must have gotten injured that day, doing the wrong thing. I wondered about that. Well, I want to well, think, think about um, think about Times Square when we were just there. You know, how many people were amazed at just the the sight of a telescope? Time? Yeah, that's what I mean. That barrier yeah. was broken that night, wasn't it? Pe yeah, people said, "What is this? Oh, can I can I look?" You know, and it's yeah, it, it, it's amazing. It, you know, people talked about telescopes like they were something that you just, I mean, the rarest thing in the world. They were asking, is that real? Is that a real telescope? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is actually. It's a real telescope. Well, they're yeah. so outside people's experience that they don't, and they know so little about them. They're very intimidating. And that's why I think this kind yeah. of program, just by letting you stand next to a telescope, touch it, look through it, and work it, uh, breaks all kinds of barriers that, that, that would not be, that are there initially. And then, and then you, it just does nothing but spark curiosity oh can i see you know nebulae with this what about you know the andromeda galaxy and oh i can take pictures holy crap you know and then it just grows 
you know, so I well, think that's why you got to love and, and I'm so proud of this program and, um, you know, the observatory, these, these program, the observatory program and the other things. And even, you know, the triad filter, Chris, you know, so the, the filter we were using in Times Square, Tony, was the triad filter. Yeah, yeah. I talk Chris, about it all the time. Yeah. Chris Hindren here is the designer. He's the one that came up with this thing. Oh, Chris. Well done, man. That is a great filter. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, the conversation happened um, at a few times over the years, well, they make narrowband filters for monochrome cameras, but then that's a lot of work. And not everybody who's a beginner wants to go out and buy a camera where they have to do the work and processing and shooting three different channels. It's just, it gets very technical, very fast. What some people want is I just, I already have a camera. I've got this DSLR. I've got this mirrorless camera. I've got this inexpensive astronomy camera. I just want to be able to shoot from my house. It's such a simple concept of why don't we look at a filter that has multiple pass bands in it that passes light in the red, the blue, and the green? Because, you know, that's how they make a digital camera. They mm -hmm. have red, green, and blue little subpixels over the sensor. And the processor on the camera combines that into a color image. So if we have a filter that lets through light at those three colors, you can take a one shot color image from a light polluted location. And that was the goal. We happened to be working with a very well-known um, filter manufacturer. We ran it by him and he just said, yeah, I think we can do something like this. And, it took a long time though. Yeah. And I remember talking to you initially, I just kept asking like, Chris, will this, this is a great idea, but will this work? Because I mean, it's, it's complex and it, mm -hmm. I mean, it took, you know, to get the one that we really wanted, the Triad Ultra, it took another six months after that even oh, yeah. to get that thing. But then once we had it and used it for the first time, it's just like, I, I can't believe this is real. What's I can't the, believe this is doing this. What's the Ultra? Yeah, what's honest, the difference? Well, the Triad has three main bands, hence the name. It has hydrogen alpha in the deep red, and then it has oxygen three in the blue green, and it has hydrogen beta, another resonance of hydrogen in the blue. So those aren't the three wavelengths that a lot of monochrome people use. They also use sulfur, which is even deeper red. Um, but we'd already designed the first filter. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and said, what if we could make a filter that had four distinct bands to kind of expand the usage, both narrow the bands in the blue to better block light pollution and moonlight and add an additional wavelength that wasn't there in the first filter, sulfur, to allow it to be used also with monochrome cameras as kind of a luminance filter for narrow bands. So we're just trying to see how we can expand the usage of this filter and allow it to reach more people. The problem was we just didn't want to, you know, we kept going back, as Chris said, to the drawing board. We just didn't want to compromise on how narrow the filter would be. You know, it would have been easy to put out a filter that's like, we can just call a light pollution filter and let's make it, you know, 18 nanometers wide mm -hmm. and, and just let it cover all of them together. But the problem is those types of things exist and they let through a lot of light pollution. So a, a lot, lot of fog, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do absolutely. a ton. And so you really had to make it a true narrow band filter. And then we got it, we got it down to like within one nanometer of what Hubble uses. Yeah, it's it's pretty narrow. I think the widest band pass, it's four distinct bands. The widest band pass on there is about five nanometers. And the narrowest At, is three, right? It's about three and a half to four. Yeah. Um, I think the constraint is that it has to be less than four. Right. But that is still incredibly narrow. And when you look at it, you know, some people, it, it's it's funny the dichotomy you see. You see some astronomy forums that shall not be named where everyone's going like, I would never buy this. This is such an expensive filter. We can't keep them on the shelf. They yeah. are gone. We get a shipment and they're out there because the people that realize it, yeah, it's an expensive filter, but it's replacing like four different filters. You'd that have each cost that much individually. Yeah, exactly. You want, you want a two inch <laughs> diameter four three or four nanometer ha filter that right there is a thousand dollar piece of glass and then you got to buy the other three mm -hmm. so and you now have to put a filter wheel which costs more money and more complexity just to right. use it when the whole idea is just simplicity bring the night sky 
to where the user is rather than have them having to drive three hours to find it. And so I think it's important we should point out these are your these are for imaging use. You, if you were to put this in front of an eyepiece, uh, you wouldn't see much because the photons are just so they're not they're not there's not enough photons for you to really see much. So you need a camera. Right. It's going to be pretty filter. darn dark. I yeah. mean, you you might see something with a huge daub on like the ring nebula because it does pass the O3 and H beta lines, but it's it's not it's never designed for visual use. That's not what its strength is, right. and and they're they're much like their other quote unquote light pollution filters out there. Yeah, they're lower cost filters. They just don't do as much. Yeah. Same thing with visual filters, Larry. Is that, do you have a perm? Is that a perm, your hair? <laughs> what is that, man? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it's what like, hair? it's like a mix between like, kind of like an Afro and then kind of like a perm. What do you have going on here? I'm just a curly headed guy. I never noticed it until I saw it like, you know, kind of swooping over the headphones right now. It looks good. Man. It looks good. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> are you checking him out now? You wouldn't go in the bathroom before, but now you're like checking out Larry. <laughs> I, 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 Larry, I told you there was good another. There by that I, I told you there was another version of that bathroom story. The, the real I knew version. It. I knew yeah. we weren't done with that story. No, 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 no. no? Yeah, check it out. That so, yeah, so Larry, you hear Larry's the na 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 over there. That's that's uh, that wasn't too old, convincing, was it? Larry's an old surfer, man. You're you're a surfer, right? Grew up yeah. surfing, been surfing for years and years, and yeah, Larry uh, really does. You have kind of like a big fro. When you come out of the ocean, man, you have a big... Well, that's the truth. They do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we, we used to have a gentleman that worked here that we used to kind of compare afros occasionally. Yeah. And uh, I think he beat me, but he I, did. Was, I was close to him. He did. They were both solid, but he definitely won. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I got a, I got a question for you about uh, a prof professional use cases and, and amateur equipment, because my favorite, let me just tell you, first of all, one of my favorite stories. When I worked at the High Altitude Observatory, there was an astronomer there who was among the first to image for exoplanets using the transit method. And he had, when I... I didn't work in his department, but when I saw in the back of the parking lot, he had set up a roll-off observatory that had 16-inch uh, LX200 mounts on them, and he, he was using off-the-shelf equipment to do this photometry. And... And after the, and after that, several years later, we also have professional groups like the Dragonfly Array, which are using 600 millimeter, an array of like, I think it's 24, uh, uh, off the shelf Canon telephoto lenses to look for dark matter. Do you guys get many situations like that where there are professional programs using off the shelf equipment uh, like that? Because those are two of the most prominent ones that I can think of. Honestly, we actually see it quite a bit. Um, part of it comes from the idea that, you know, NASA has these huge budgets. They have the GMT. They have all the different projects, um, you know, for these huge next generation telescopes. But those can only look at one direction at once. And we've seen a lot of um, interest, shall we say, in consumer off-the-shelf products either as a proof of concept or often just a way of distributing resources to multiple locations uh, at a lower cost. And they've gotten that good, haven't they? The commercial off-the-shelf equipment has gotten good enough now where the read noise, the quantum efficiency, the bandpass re uh, re response, all of these things are such that professionals are turning to them quite a bit it seems to me like i mean the dragonfly array alone if you look at it it looks like somebody just raided you know a camera store and started mounting them up on a telescope mount yeah and and now you're kind of getting into, into the area where you know our loyalty to our customers both legally and and just the just the loyalty that we want to show to them comes out because a lot of this is going on and we've been asked not to talk about a lot of that stuff so we, we we have to be very general in what we say. Well, I know, yeah, and I don't I don't mean you to. I'm not trying to get you to divulge anything secret. I just no, I know. You're I'm not. just as a general rule, are you discovering that the professional market can and is able now more than at any other time in the past? I would think uh, to use off the shelf equipment. And are you you know able to meet those needs using off the shelf equipment? Yeah, that that's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah, and yes, we can, and we do. 
Yeah, a lot of the um, the you know the breaking news kind of stuff you see is done with off the shelf equipment. Not all of it, but a lot of it is, and it's it's amazing. Somebody found an exoplanet with a Rasa, wasn't it a Rasa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what is that a three thousand thirty five hundred dollar telescope, eleven inch Rasa, yep. and from their backyard found an exoplanet. I mean, think about what that means to science. Well, yeah, right? and Jerry Hubble. I talked to him at Neve. He explore scientific guy. He was he had a whole paper that he had written about this topic using diffusers and off the shelf mm-hmm. refractors to measure these light curves. And I'm dying to talk to him more about you know what he's doing. So yeah, yeah as camera technology gets better and new ideas filter out, we're finding that in many cases when. You have to have a big telescope when the faintness of the object is the limiting factor. But there's really, especially with all the Gaia data coming out, there's so much out there. Um, I went to a recent event with uh, a customer group we work with that's trying to get photometry out there among schools as follow-up for exoplanet searches using generally small equipment like 10-inch and larger telescopes. The problem is the professionals are drowning in data and they almost need these schools or amateurs to come along and follow up and see, is is that little blip an actual exoplanet? Can we recreate this data using lower cost equipment and then submit it and peer review papers get written from some things? Yeah, and I've I've said this before. I believe that exoplanet research with the transit measuring light curves and 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 using like you've been pointing out uh, astrometric data from Gaia as well as uh, the, uh, light curves from places people like Tess that that is about to explode for the citizen science average uh, amateur astronomer community, and it is where. I believe astro imaging was about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, people were just starting to think about DSLRs. They were getting rid of their film and they're so going, how am I going to image with these digital things? And it was all this stuff was getting worked out. Now imaging is like you, you just set up and boom, you're on the, you know, you've got a front page uh, photo for sky and tell, but now the, but research for exoplanet light curves and doing science, I think is just starting to get, available to the general public and they're figuring it out whether they're going to need to buy a canon 300 millimeter lens or a uh, a six inch telescope or whatever it happens to be or some kind of computer system to go through the data i think we're on the cusp of that i think we're going to see a lot more of that in amateur astronomy in the coming years i I think you're right tony you know and again that was part of of the birth of this you know future stars program again just getting the telescopes getting children students who are quite young still mm-hmm. to even to understand the possibilities that are that are out there, even for the teachers, that, you know, the staffs that are working with them. Once they have this this kind of equipment in their hands, the possibilities are endless. Like like you said, with citizen science and stuff, of, of what they can actually accomplish, or at least get a start and heading in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, and make a difference in the professional world. I mean, we've just seen glimpses with Galaxy Zoo and a few other citizen science initiatives where regular people are being attributed uh, their names to discoveries uh, and and finding new things or certainly getting their names in scientific papers. That whole thing is just going to blow. I mean, everybody is going to be able to participate in actual, real, peer-reviewed science with the tools that exist now and uh, with the processing tools that are going to come later. Because you're absolutely right. The data is overwhelming. And it's also because they're funded by government agencies like NASA or the European Space Agency or European Southern Observatory, whoever it might be, that data is available to the public. You just got to figure out how to get it and do something with it, ask questions of it, and then you can you can be a part of science. So it's exciting, I think. And I, 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 if you get a middle schooler, somebody in seventh grade, looking for the first time through a C5 or whatever it is they happen to have, that's going to light that fire. And then when they get into high school and maybe college, they're going to be, boy, you know, I sure wish I could get back into that and use these telescopes. They might get a university-grade computer or telescope or something like that. So, yeah, it's exciting times. Yeah, and, and there's no telling what's going to be available when these young, like you said, middle school children do become adults, uh, how fast things are changing in this industry. that it, it can be absolutely amazing, the telescopes that will be available to them and affordable. 
What do you guys think is going to be the biggest advances in amateur um, equipment going forward? Is it going to be in optics and coding, or is it going to be in electronics and tracking? What's it going to be? Where's the where's the growth? I think um, you know optics are already quite good, and where you're running into a problem there is the affordability of larger sensors. You know, we're just starting to get where medium format digital is even within the consideration of people who aren't, uh, you know, actual professional photographers. I know Dustin, you shoot medium format as well. I do. Um, and that wasn't even on the radar before, you know, back then the last people who shot medium format were people who shot film 10 or 20 years ago with Pentax six by sevens and things like that. So I think we are at a point where the size of sensors and the Optics are actually at a very good point. I think we're seeing a lot of new technologies come out in the mounts and tracking. We're seeing even very affordable mounts coming out with high resolution encoders to where you essentially have the software look real time and negate the gear errors by reading this on axis encoder. Think of like a clock subdivided into several million ticks, little mm -hmm. fractions of a second all the way around, and a wind gust hits it or uh, a high spot or a low spot on the gear, and suddenly the, the the computer or the processor says, I'm on the wrong encoder tick. I need to move back a couple. It's amazing. And we're starting to see consumer mounts with sub-arc second tracking become much more yeah. common. Look at the stuff AP just put out. AP just oh, released yeah. that uh, that encoded mount. Uh, AP? Yeah, the new Mach 2. The Mach 2. Astrophysics. Astrophysics. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 We got to see it at Neef. And then yeah, uh, the it. direct drive mount from Plane Wave, which is yep. unbelievable. And then what about the harmonic drive mounts from well, Hobum? Harmonic drive has been a huge thing too. Um, when I was relatively new at OPT, we worked with a company and they had these harmonic drive mounts that... I mean, think of it, they basically use a spring to uh, like uh, spring tension to keep the inner gear in kind of an elliptical shape against an outer gear. It keeps both long ends of the ellipse engaged at all times. So instead of having two or three teeth engaged like a normal telescope mount, you have like 20 or 30 percent of the teeth engaged at both ends of this ellipse. It's a massive amount of torque. And we have a mount that weighs about 10 pounds that can carry 40 pounds of payload. Because you of the extra need teeth. To put a Exactly. Because of the way the mount is designed, the amount of torque. And that is, it's a phenomenal new technology that allows very portable systems to carry. I mean, there's something you could basically backpack up a mountain with that'll carry a six inch or eight inch RC telescope on it. It'll carry yeah. 22 pound load. And there's, there's still, um, I mean, they're still fairly expensive, I think, for most people just jumping into the hobby. You know, it might be five grand to six, seven grand, depending on the, the one you choose. But um, you think about the cost, how much it's come down from the ones you were talking about when you first started. What were those $200,000? Yeah. harmonic drive mounts? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, I think, the smallest mount that that company made at one point was about $90,000. Yeah. And so to go to 5,000 is an incredible step forward. Oh, absolutely. It's much like large format digital. You know, when the right. first medium format digitals came out, you know, some of the Hasselblad, the phase one, you were looking at forty, fifty thousand dollars exactly. cameras. Yeah. Now you have like Fuji, you know, Fuji 5,000. Yeah, 5,000. So in just a few years, the technology has caused a tenfold decrease in cost. Yeah. We're starting to see that filter through the tracking systems. Uh, the other thing we're seeing a lot of is um, Raspberry Pis and integrated computer mm, systems yeah. becoming available. I love that. Yeah, uh, love the that. StellarMate being one that That's we distribute, yeah. the ASI Air. Um, a lot of the stuff from Prima Luce Lab where they actually have solid state Windows PCs that are tiny. You mount them to the telescope. The Eagle. Yeah, the, the Eagle. Eagle. I saw you that. Plug, yeah. thing yeah. is crazy. And it's just that sort of thing um, – is changing the landscape because all the cables just plug in to a much more integrated system. I think integration is a direction we're going to see a lot more in coming years. Um, it'll be interesting to see which uh, mount or telescope manufacturer decides to just build the integrated computer into their system and have you just plug it, the camera and everything into the telescope mount. Right. 
Right. I'm sure that's coming down the lines, maybe next five or 10 years. Yeah. Well, Ioptron even put in uh, the polar, uh, the electronic polar alignment built yep. into their new mounts. Oh, yeah. You know, and Skywatcher for a couple of years now has like a DSLR shutter attachment that runs off their hand controller. You plug your DSLR in and you can control the exposure from the same hand controller you drive them out with. Oh, that's cool. Well, well, let me ask you guys this then. I recently had a, a hangout with a guy uh, who was working on a 30 meter telescope and he was in charge of the adaptive optics. And the adaptive optics on that telescope, I don't have to tell you, is gonna be amazing. But what about, and I'm not talking about tip-tilt technology, what about adaptive optics? Is it ever gonna get down to the amateur level where we all we have our little guide star, our laser guide star, and we're we, doing our own adaptive optics. Is that ever going to happen? We talked, Chris. Yeah, you and I talked to somebody at uh, one of the conferences we went to. What mm-hmm. maybe six months ago? Yeah, and they were getting it to a place where I think at what did he say? Was it uh, twenty hertz? Uh, I think it was a little faster than that. Maybe, was it? maybe. Yeah, I mean, it was fast, so it was at least twenty corrections a mm-hmm. second. And um, yeah, I mean, it was real. It wasn't just the tip tilt thing. But he said his price was like still seven, eight thousand dollars, and that it had a tiny image circle, didn't it? It was like yeah. really small. Yeah, it was an actual deformable mirror that had little actuators behind it. The problem is, you get the device and a driver you have to write your own control software for it you have to integrate the laser i think the biggest issue that we see is that that's not really until you get amateurs using meter class telescopes that's not really the the fundamental threshold Mm -hmm. what you're really going to come out have uh happen is mounts that come pretty close to perfectly tracking and then even the tip-tilt system can take care of most of what an amateur sees. The actual deformable mirror technology really only makes sense if you have an ultra-long focal length with a very small field of view. Um, I see. So the fast than- systems that, that amateurs buy aren't lending themselves very well to say, I don't know, well, the TMT was at, was operating at 1,000 hertz. So it, it doesn't, sure. it doesn't uh, lend, lend itself well to to that because there's a so look small. at the focal length of that system sure, exactly sure. Yeah. The, you know the average amateur with and the field uh, of view is tiny an app exactly with an apo refractor or a an sct or a, a plane wave or something like that even upper level amateurs they're only imaging at maybe two three thousand millimeters max and the choice of the observatory site the atmospheric stability and the quality of the mount they have matter far more you, you can't you can't just throw an adaptive optic system and fix that like a band-aid uh, uh, you have to have everything else in line sense. first and that has that has much more even with the tip tilt systems we have some amateurs that just don't buy them because if they have a premium site with with excellent seeing below an arc second they have one of these new direct drive mounts with tracking at a third of an arc second over several minutes they're like, what do I need AO for? My mount's track, my mount's making corrections at 120 hertz. No AO in the amateur realm is going to keep up. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's good. I, yeah, I guess I, I'm glad I asked that question then because it was, you know, it is something that um, I've always wondered about and I thought maybe it could be a growth industry for amateur astronomy, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it's not really well suited. The, the mounts are better. The mount technology. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of a different realm for you to... Um, running that department here. So OPT has uh, six departments, including, you know, the used telescope department, sales, marketing, shipping, receiving, operations, and accounting, so on. And um, you, your department is kind of separated from the rest because of the, you know, the things that you have to be, you have to keep very quiet. You can't talk about, and just the level of detail that goes into a lot of the sales. I mean, a single sale, for some of this stuff has so much going into it. It can take months and months to piece together. I mean, I see gold plated mirrors coming through here all the time for people doing infrared. Hopefully I'm not giving anything away. Right no, there, there you go. <laughs> Thanks Dustin. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I mean, it, people know that gold plated right. mirrors work on with infrared. Um, and so uh, what is that? What's that like, man? That, kind of uh, isolation being at the top of the astronomy realm. Well, it's uh, it, like you said, it can be intimidating for some other people to see the types of things we talk about. Sometimes it yeah. gets momentarily intimidating to be in the mix of it because you realize 
we've got to find a solution for this customer, right. this, this top level problem. And there's, there's uh, we've got to craft that solution in this office. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to necessarily go and find a solution collaborating with other departments right. in many cases, you know, shipping, receiving things like that. We can do that. Um, but that's, that's where research becomes important and maintaining a great open channel with these top end, um, manufacturers. If I'm not emailing a manufacturer in Europe, I'm calling a, a manufacturer rep in the U S sometimes on their cell phone, not even sure if they're at work or not, just saying, yeah. I need an answer for this. The customer, we have to find a solution yeah. for this customer's needs. Well, you guys got to be super proud. I remember when I was at, uh, when we were at uh, Amos in Hawaii, we were talking to one of the camera manufacturers and they were talking about MIT and their recent discovery. And uh, I remember that it was only a month before that or, or two months before that, that you and I were talking about how you'd finally gotten them situated. They understand the, they understand the equipment you were sending and everything. And um, there's got to be a lot of, it's got to be very proud moments for you guys when you see it all come together and then the discovery is made, right? The system worked and what they had in mind actually worked and they made their discovery. You know, that's that's got to be a proud moment when so much goes into it. Yeah, it really is. A lot of times, you know, after these projects are, are done and, and started and, and they're working, we get the pictures back mm-hmm. and we get to talk to people. They're always afterwards. amazing photos too because yeah, it's and, at the and, top and, level. Yeah, and you really get the concept then of, of what you were helping with mm-hmm. because a lot of times you just get so involved. Well, every time really, you get so involved in, like Chris says, just, you know, problem solving, setting things up. Right. That you're not giving a lot of thought to the end result except to what's right in front of you because it comes at us at a very, very consistent pace. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the one thing we stay extremely busy. And, uh, if you can help us, Tony, that's our plug. We need more help. Yeah, so, absolutely, man. I'm there. <laughs> talk to Dustin about that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So, so, but it, it really is, it, it's, it's so tedious. It's so technical. And then again, as far as the technicalities go there, there really is like Dustin said earlier, there is nobody in this business like Chris, nobody. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, before we walked in here this morning to, to have this podcast, I was telling uh, uh, an architect exactly that, that I need to get you in the hands of Chris because Chris will be able to help you with these questions. We should have a podcast segment with the two of you that's just let all of the listeners, anyone who cares about astronomy, call in and try to ask you guys a question that between the two of you can't answer. Yeah. I would be amazed if there's one. I, I honestly would be amazed if between the two of you, there's a, there's a question. That you guys can't answer. I've been thinking about that. I think I think once. we should look into that too, Dustin. I've been thinking about a way to get people to call in. I think we could probably figure out the technical aspect of that. We just need a phone number. It's the most amazing we thing. Do Down to the point where it's almost like a game. You just walk in sometimes and ask Chris, <laughs> like, hey, what what's the back focus of this scope and which adapters would I need if I put this camera on? He just, oh, here's what you need. He draws it out and he's like, go. Get out yeah. of my office. I tell people I can't remember yeah. names and faces, but I have lots of weird uh, back focus numbers it's and crazy, astronomy man. information. Yeah, it's bouncing it's crazy. around up there. Yeah, uh, well, somebody the there needs to learn the, the Heimlich. Is all I gotta say, just in case, right? I mean, really, you don't. Just let Larry punch you in the face <laughs> and in the neck. I'm telling you, man, I've seen it work. Right. And you have to turn them upside down. Larry so runs over there. Don't forget to turn them upside down. Yeah, well, yeah. He, he, <laughs> turn them upside he down part. Pushes, <laughs> he pushes you on the ground and starts punching you in the neck. And next thing you know, your life is saved. Yeah. Well, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's an, that was a funny story, man. I love that. All right. Well, listen, guys, oh, good, good luck on that Future Stars program. And please let me know. I want to get involved. So I, let me know what I can do to help uh, on my end on this side of the country because I think it's a great idea. So I hope you guys you know, keep going with that. It sounds like a really important piece of work. And, um, I don't know, I, I, Dustin, do you want to add anything else? No, okay. no. I mean, I, I talk about it all the time. You know, I get to work with my heroes here and, and these are two of them right here. So it's, uh, it's been a pleasure having you guys That's on the right. podcast. Chris, thank Chris you. Hedren and thank Larry you. Weatherly. Thank you both very much for taking time out to join us. And, uh, we're going to call it an episode, I guess. So I'm sure you guys will be back for more stories. So we're going to be, we'll be enjoying your company and future podcasts. So thanks for taking time out to talk with us. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson from OPT, I'm Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. 
please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.